Good morning and welcome to Calvary Bible Church. Thank you for joining us this morning. My name is PJ Ryan and I serve as one of the elders here at Calvary. We will be reading this morning uh, from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20. I'm reading from the NASB. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, P.J. Before we begin this morning, let us just bow in a real quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you just for your word and how it enlightens our eyes. And Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. May we live uh, not in fear of what we cannot see, but Lord, that we live boldly in the promises that you've given us in your word. Lord, view it this morning. Thank you for this church and for all the things that are going on. And we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, if you do not know, I'm Byron Bradshaw, the pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for being here this morning. So today we are in our third week of a four-week series on systematic theology. And why are we doing this? I'm just going to briefly introduce it like I have the last couple of weeks. Well, the reason every year we set aside January to talk about doctrine, talk about systematic theology, and why. Part of it is because of our mission. The mission of Calvary Bible Church is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. Part of being a biblical follower is understanding doctrine. So two years ago, we started this January tradition. We, we, two years ago, we started out with the question, who is God? And we looked at God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and then the triune nature of God. And then last year, we looked at bibliology, like what is the Bible, how do we know it's inspired. And then this year, we're spending the month of January talking about angelology, the unseen realm. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at what are angels, that we looked at their angels are God's messengers. Last week, we talked about the uncomfortable subject of, of what are demons, okay? And it was a little tense in here that week, okay? So we talked about that last week. And then today, it's another kind of one of those topics and subjects is what is spiritual warfare? So this week, we're talking about spiritual warfare, specifically the tactics of the enemy, the strategy, the quadrants of his activity in the world. But then also next week, we'll talk about, okay, how do we respond to that? So specifically next week, we'll look at Ephesians chapter 6, 
And typically what we do at Calvary Bible Church is we spend, you know, months or sometimes years going through a book of the Bible, and we just set aside the month of January to do something a little bit different and talk about uh, doctrine. So today what I want to talk to you about are the, the tactics of the enemy, the strategy he uses, specifically the quadrants of his activity. Okay. Let me just ask you the question. And this is a, a duh question, I get it. Uh, how many of you have ever watched a football game before? Okay. You can't live in Alabama without that. Um, you know, if you were to look at the game of football, you know, all we really see are the plays and the strategy on the field themselves. But if you would talk to the athletes, far more goes in behind the scenes than we give it credit for. That during the week, we obviously know they practice on the field, you know, they run plays, they run formations, they get yelled at by their coach, we know all that. But there's also another segment of their week that they take, take and set aside. If you were to talk to almost every athlete on the college or professional level, they would say what? That they watch film. That they sit in this musty, dark room and watch hours and hours and hours of film about their opponent. And the question is why? Why would they set aside sometime during their week to study their opponent? That in order to have victory over their opponent, in order to have victory over their enemy in a football game, they must understand their enemy. They must understand their opponent. They must understand the plays and the strategy and the formation and the tactics that they take. I think it's similar with us in the spiritual world. Let's just all be honest. We, um, we live life like the fans. You know, we oftentimes just kind of let life happen to us. And we just react to the plays that are going on before our eyes as if innocent bystanders. But what we don't realize is that there is a spiritual game, a spiritual warfare going on every single day of every single month of every single year over our lives. And until we realize that we're not really fans on the sideline of spiritual warfare, but we are uh, sometimes unwilling participants of it, will we ever really be able to understand and overcome and have victory over the enemy and his tactics? So today what I want to talk to you about is the tactics of the enemy, specifically the four quadrants that he has in the game of spiritual warfare. So if you have your Bible, today we're going to be kind of bouncing around all over the place. We're going to be starting in Colossians chapter 1, but your finger is going to get a little bit of a workout today from because doctrine is a collection of verses, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today is the issue of spiritual warfare. But I would like to begin with this quote. It's from a pastor named Tony Evans. And he says this regarding spiritual warfare. He says this, that you are not, you are not fighting for victory. You are fighting from victory. That you are not fighting for victory. You are fighting from, from victory. That we do not have to fear. We do not have to fret. We do not have to be paranoid. We don't have to look for a devil under every single rock. We, we should, as we talked about last week, we should be aware of their activity, that they are real, that they have uh, influence over the world that we live in, number one, that we should be aware. Number two, that we should be bold, that we should not be afraid of the enemy and what he does. And number three, we should be cautious, that we should understand how the enemy works in the world. And we should not, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, 26, 
26 and 27, we should not give the enemy a place or an opportunity to cause havoc in our life. But this is a true statement, that you are not fighting for victory, you are fighting from victory. But where do we get that from? What is the basis for that assumption? It's in Colossians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin with verse 13. And uh, Colossians chapter 1 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the scripture, and specifically verse 13 as a whole. It's one of the reasons why we taught Colossians last year. And this is what it says in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1. For he rescued us. Let me, let me repeat that. For he rescued us. For he rescued us. Everybody say amen. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That sends chill bumps up my spine. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What's the time stamp on that? Is that past, present, or future? It's past. For he rescued us. That through his death, he had, our sin is paid for on the cross. That when you believe in Jesus Christ, at that exact moment, you are rescued from the domain of darkness. And transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's an event that has already happened in time. That when you believe in Jesus Christ, at that exact moment, you are no longer living under the authority, under the complete influence of the enemy. But now we have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. As I have said already, you are not fighting for victory, you are fighting from victory. The enemy thought that Jesus' death on the cross would have been the end, but it was merely the beginning. The head of the serpent has been crushed, evidenced by the empty tomb. Satan has lost his authority, but he still has his power. His power is only effective when we do not realize our position. We have no reason to fear. We live under the thumb of a sovereign God, and so does he, because we are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. But the enemy no longer has authority. The head of the serpent has been crushed under the heel of the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He is no longer has authority in the world, but he still has power. He still has influence. He still causes havoc in our world. So how does he play the game? What are the quadrants of his power and of his influence? I see that there are four different quadrants, four different playing fields, if you will, over the influence of the enemy. The first one is probably the most obvious of spiritual warfare, that Satan, this enemy, his name means adversary. His scheme happened in the quadrant number one of the world. In quadrant number one of the world, if you have your notes, that's kind of the first quadrant in your notes and this is where it talks about that, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But first, before we go into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's just answer the question, what do we mean by the world? We don't really mean uh, the, the blue ball floating in the midst of the solar system. It, it's not really what we mean by the world. What we mean by the world is the... Is, Everything that happens in the physical domain, everything that has been tarnished and darkened by sin. So you look at, you know, sin, 
people live in darkness. We see the media, Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, okay, man-made institutions, politicians, all that stuff. All of that lives under the domain of darkness is in the world. And what does it say that we are? It says here that he is the God of this world, but what does it call us as believers in Jesus Christ? It says that we live in the world, but we are no longer of the world. Why? For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The reason why we are not of this world is because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. John 15 verse 19 says this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. So Christ says, we were living in the world, we are chosen out of the world, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are rescued from the domain of darkness, but Satan no longer has authority, but he still has influence. Why does he have influence? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we see quadrant number one of spiritual warfare is in the world. And how does the enemy work? He works with deception. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving. He deceives. How does the enemy deceive the world? Let's just talk about that. He deceives the world by inserting false doctrine, false belief that are counterintuitive, or not counterintuitive, antithetical to the truth of God's word. And he does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Let me pause. The way the enemy works in the world is by deceiving it. So the better question we have as believers in Jesus Christ, what do we do about it? But let's just, let's just draw an illustration real quick. Sometimes the enemy deceives the world very slightly, very slowly. Uh, for giving you an illustration, I, I thought of this last night. I had already completed my sermon. And I was like, man, this would be a pretty good one for this particular section. So last night, Laurel and I are driving around. You know, we're bored out of our mind, probably from uh, the ice mageddon being stuck in our house for like three weeks with little kids. Okay, we're still going stir crazy in that effort. Okay, so last night we're driving around and we take books to the public library. Any excuse to get out of our house, I guess. And we went and got french fries at McDonald's because, you know, you eat there too. Just admit it. Okay. Um, and then, but then we decided, okay, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to go to this store and buy something called Bean Boozled. Am I know what I'm talking about? Anybody have any idea? Yeah, okay. So what it is is it's jelly beans in this little uh, cardboard box. And what you do is you have this little spinner and you spin it. And then whatever jelly bean the arrow lines on, you eat that jelly bean. Does that make sense? But there's a problem. It's because there are two different jelly beans that look the exact same. One is tutti frutti and one is dead fish. Uh, <laughs> one is cappuccino and one is liver and onions. 
All right? And so there's a host of these. I think there were some other ones. Uh, Barf was one on there. A toothpaste. So anyways, we played it with my uh, seven-year-old and my five-year-old. So that was fun to see the reaction. Um, traumatized them forever. And so you spin this thing and you grab it and you just hope, you pray that it's cappuccino and not liver and onions, right? So then you bite it and you find out, right? You chomp. That's how sometimes the enemy works in our world. He, it looks like the same thing. It looks like the truth, maybe according to the word of God. But there are just these subtle and disgusting differences, But sometimes the enemy deceives the world when it is totally and completely obvious. You know, right now, we can look into our world and just look at all of the different beliefs that are cycling around our culture that are counterintuitive to the Word of God, that are antithetical. Let me just give you an example, the idea of gender. Okay? Yes, I went there this morning. I went online and I see 72 different genders, technically. And I'm sitting there like, wait, wait a second. Uh, I thought that was settled. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God created male and female. So the question is, is, this is how spiritual warfare works in the world. Number one, sometimes he inserts doctrine that look almost like truth until you really deep down dive into the subject matter itself. Or sometimes he just inserts doctrine into their culture, into the world that are completely counter, antithetical, completely opposed to the word of God as a whole. So the question is this, what do we do about it? What should we do in response to the deception of the enemy in the world? We need to spot it with the truth of the word of God. Your word is what? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That we need to look at God's word and spot the lies of the enemy throughout the deception that is out there as the God of this world. So the spiritual warfare, number one, happens in the world through deception. We spot it with the truth. Quadrant number two is seen in the church. Squadron number two of spiritual warfare is seen in the called out ones, ecclesia, what's what that word means, the collection of believers in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. Uh, we see it all the time in the church, and we see spiritual warfare most evidently displayed in churches through conflict. Conflict. Let me just, let me just do a survey real quick. Um, how many of you have ever had conflict in the church before? All right, right. We all have experienced our feelings being hurt, or somebody being rude to us, or, you know, we ourselves being the aggressor and being the frustrator. I, I'm not perfect, and I'm not immune to both conflict towards myself and also sometimes, unfortunately, introducing conflict. But what does it say in Galatians chapter 5? It talks about how we react to conflict in the church. This is how it really displays itself in the body of Christ. For you were called to freedom, brother. Only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But this is how it works. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's how spiritual warfare takes place. It happens through conflict in the church. And a lot of times with conflict, you know, it's over a period of time. How would you, how would you, okay, 
How many of you are like me? You don't have to raise your hand to this, but man, how many of you love a big 16-ounce medium-rare steak? You know what I'm talking about? Any other carnivores in the room? Okay. Um, and when you see that massive steak, it can be overwhelming. Well, in my case, it's not because I just... Um, but how do you eat that thing? You eat it one bite at a time. That's the way conflict and spiritual warfare works in churches. It's one comment, one thing, one dirty look, you know, one selfish act. And it's just what it does in churches. And I've seen it, friends. I've seen it over and over again. A little bit of gossip here and a little bit of gossip there. And we'll sprinkle on a little bit of anger and bitterness and a little bit here. And we eventually just completely devour the church, the sense of unity in the body of Christ. But this is what it says in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. How do we react what do we do in response to conflict being introduced in the body of Christ and spiritual warfare? I want you to think about something real quick. Um, every, every single argument, every single conflict, not just in the church, but your personal life, at work, in your marriage, in your home, as a parent, what is always the root of conflict in, always the root of conflict? It is one person, at least one person, being Selfish. I want, I need, I deserve, I'm hurt, I'm right, you're wrong, I want. And then we take that and we just create a wedge in our relationships. Not just in church, but as a whole. That's why it says in Philippians chapter 2, what does it say? Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If you notice in the New Testament, it is very evident spiritual warfare most often takes place in conflict. Whether it's conflict over immorality, or differences of opinion, or differences of preferences, or differences of tier three doctrines. It all is rooted in, I want, I need, I deserve, I... How do we combat the enemy? Spiritual warfare is seen in the church with conflict, and we combat it by stifling it with selflessness. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. One of uh, the core values of Calvary Bible Church is that we, we bridge selflessly. That, what that means is, it sometimes is, is aspirational, I get that, but what it means is that when we come to church, that we try to set ourselves aside and put others above ourselves, that we prioritize him and we over me, all of us, including hopefully this guy, okay? But we're all guilty of introducing conflict in the church, introducing conflict in our family. And so how do we combat the enemy? We do nothing from selfishness. We try to be selfless. But uh, if you've been at church for more than like a week, okay, that's just the way we wired uh, human beings, you know, you, you, you will have scars and wounds, 
from church. That's just the way we're wired, man. I, I, there's a reason why in the New Testament unity is a continual theme. It's because they need to be united. But, and if you've been in church any length of time, then I imagine you have some wounds. But what does it say in Ephesians chapter 4? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Spiritual warfare in the world is seen in deception. We spot it with truth. Spiritual warfare in the church is seen in conflict. We stifle it with selflessness. Quadrant number three is spiritual warfare happens in the family. It happens in the family. Spiritual warfare happens in the family because whoever controls the family controls the future. Whoever controls the family controls the future. Can I just say something to fathers and husbands in the room specifically? Caring for your family is critical. Loving your family well. Shepherding their hearts. Not just providing for them monetarily, but providing for their spiritual needs. I want you to think about something. How does the enemy work in our families? How did Satan trip up Adam? He tempted Eve. How did Satan get Abel? He tempted Cain. The enemy oftentimes works in spiritual warfare and with the issue of temptation. You know, if he wants to take you out, what he typically does is he tempts other people in your house to cause conflict and, you know, I mean... You know, so I've had multiple conversations with my children that were probably were not the most sanctified and glorifying to the Lord because they are tempted to what? If you've ever had a child that's, you know, live with you, they're tempted to disobey. That's just the way they're, I, I asked you to pick up the wrapper and put it in the track. How did it end up here? Um, the enemy works in our families through the issue of temptation and how do we Combat it. You know, what do we do as parents, moms and dads? How do we do that as husbands and wives, as roommates? What I'm going to say is this. Spiritual warfare happens in the family through temptation, and we combat it with shepherding our family with love. Where do I get that from? I want you to think about the most famous passage, which we'll talk about next week, in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll unpack that whole passage next week in the armor of God. But Ephesians chapter 6 is like the passage on spiritual warfare. I mean, if you're ever going to talk about it, that's the one to go to, right? So but what comes right before that? What is at the end of Ephesians chapter 5? It is how wives and husbands and fathers and mothers care for their family. Why does he say that? It's because if the enemy can get control of the family, he controls the future. And what is the commandment to parents and fathers and husbands again and again and again? To fathers in Ephesians chapter 6, do not provoke your children to anger. Oh, well, yeah. I can, I can work on that one a little bit. Okay, sometimes I poke my seven-year-old a little too much. Okay, but then also on the other side of the coin, it says what? Husbands, love your wives. How do we combat the enemy? The enemy works through temptation in our family, and we combat it by shepherding our families, caring for them, loving them, not just putting a roof over their head. That's important. Don't get me wrong. 
but caring for the spiritual well-being of our children and of our family. I had an elder one time uh, about six months ago or so. We, we grabbed lunch, and he was raising a daughter. And he, his daughter's grown and gone now, and he knows I'm raising three daughters. I have a seven, a five, and a two. And they're all uh, wonderful, and I love them, and they're great. And I mean that very sincerely. Um, and he, he said to me, you know, Byron, you have a girl. He's like, love them. He's like, just love them. Love on them. Love on them like crazy. And now it happened months ago, and I still kind of put that in my mind. Be tender to your family. Shepherd them with love. Spiritual warfare happens in the world, happens in the church, happens in the family. But last but not least, it's the most obvious answer of all. It also happens to us as individuals, that we ourselves experience spiritual warfare. And I'm just going to say, how do we experience spiritual warfare as individuals? I'm going to say the word distraction. Distraction. Through temptation or through affecting of our circumstances. One pastor says this, Satan combats God's purposes. By getting you to focus on what you don't have instead of what you do have. Let me say that again. Satan combats God's purposes by getting you to focus on what you don't have instead of what you do have. How did Satan tempt Adam and Eve in the garden? You know, think about them. They lived for some indefinite period of time in the Garden of Eden. Probably months, if not years, in the Garden of Eden. And the enemy takes... You know, the, the appearance of a serpent, and he tempts them with one thing. They have all of these other trees to eat from and to enjoy. They have all the purposes of naming the animals and enjoying the relationship and the presence of God forever. And the enemy tempts them by saying, has God not said, you will be like God. See that tree of the knowledge of good and evil just over there. God said you can't have it, so you should have it. Because you will be then like God, knowing good and evil. Friends, listen to me. The enemy often distracts us, not with what we have, but what we don't have. Think about the source of envy, covetousness. Think about the source of all that. It's all rooted in what we do not have. And that's what the enemy does. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, Job chapter 1 Satan can affect our circumstances. Job chapter 2, he can affect our health. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the enemy can hit us where we are weak. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he can convince us of false doctrine. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he can convince us or tempt us to sin. Spiritual warfare in the individual is seen in distraction by him saying to us, you don't have this, therefore you should want it. What should we do in response? We should give thanks for what we have. We should be content in what we have. We should be giving thanks for what the Lord has blessed us with in our daily life instead of always worrying about what we do not have. The enemy drives us off course, spiritual warfare, with the distraction of what we do not currently possess. So my emphasis on us as individuals is to stay focused, to not be distracted by what we don't have, but to give thanks for what we do have. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Very famous verse right after the hall of faith. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 11, surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance 
and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Spiritual warfare in the world happens in deception, spotted with truth. In the church, conflict, be selfless. In our families, with temptation, shepherd with love. And in us as individuals, with distractions, so we stand firm or stay focused on the cross. That's how spiritual warfare works in the four quadrants of this world. But I'm going to revisit a quote. You are not fighting for victory, you're fighting from victory. You're not fighting for victory, you're fighting from victory. The enemy cannot change your standing with God. You are transferred from the kingdom, from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. He cannot change your salvation. You were sealed in the spirit. He cannot change your standing with God. You are adopted. He cannot change anything about your value. You are a new creation. He cannot change anything about your life without God's permission because God is a sovereign God ruling this world under his sovereign will. The enemy can only distract you, tempt you, discourage you, cause disappointment, cause conflict, cause sickness, cause pain. But friends, listen to me. You have no reason to fear. We oftentimes don't like to talk about the unseen realm because it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. We always fear what we do not understand. But until, friends, until we understand the tactics of the enemy, we won't really know how to respond in those moments. We as individuals, let us, what does it say in Ephesians chapter 6, let us stand firm against the arrows and the wiles of the enemy. Let us call a spade a spade. Let us just notice the conflict in the church as spiritual warfare. Let's not... I think sometimes, especially we in kind of more biblical-centric and conservative churches, we, we are almost tempted to, to not over-spiritualize everything. And, and, I, and I get it. But we are no longer fans on the sidelines. But we are players in the game of spiritual warfare. And things are going on in our life. And let's just be proactive with it. Let us recognize it for what it is. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. I'm going to leave you with four different ideas. And they say not to do this in preacher school. They say to leave with one. But I'm just going to break all the rules. Okay. Number one, the first three are what we talked about last week. In response to spiritual warfare, in in an effort to answer this question, so what? How does this apply to our life? Number one, I'm just encouraging you to be aware. To be spiritually minded. Just to be on the lookout that there is spiritual warfare going on in the world, in the church, in your family, and you as an individual. And notice what is happening. Number one. Number two is this. Be bold. Do not be afraid. He, the enemy, cannot change anything about your standing with God, that you were sealed in the day of redemption. You are a child of God, adopted in Him. You have the, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid. He, too, also lives under the sovereign rule of God. Go look at Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. Be aware 
Be bold. Number three is to be cautious. Do not give the enemy a foothold in your life. And number four is to be diligent. Is to be diligent. To stand firm. Do not be afraid. Stand on the truth of the word of God and stand firm against the arrows of the enemy. Next week, we're going to unpack the second piece of spiritual warfare. So this week we looked at the strategy of the enemy. We kind of looked at game film and football. And then next week we're going to call some plays and some talk about some formations that we can have in order to push back against the warfare that we cannot see. I'm going to revisit a verse that I read earlier. It says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. Allow me to say, allow me to preach Christ in the gospel. The gospel, we, we throw that word around, and it, what it means is it means the good news. But in order to understand the good news, you must understand the bad news. The bad news is that you and I are sinners. Amen? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall to sin and temptations of the enemy. That's just the way it is. So then Christ came and he died on a cross to pay for our sin in full. And he died on the cross to be the propitiation or satisfaction for our sin. And he offers the gift of eternal life free of charge to us. That if we would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our life, that we would be saved. What does it say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you would die tonight and not know where you would go, if you do not have the security of eternal life in heaven, then today is the day of salvation. I would encourage you to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. The scripture says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you have any questions about Christ, how to enter a relationship with him, I would encourage you to see me after the service. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for just the ability to talk about theology and doctrine, and specifically today, the issue of spiritual warfare. What, what really is going on? What are the tactics? What is the strategy of the enemy as he uh, attempts to influence the world? Lord, I pray that in this particular subject matter, Lord, I pray that next week would be kind of the completion of what we do in response about the armor of God. How can we truly be diligent? How can we truly stand firm in the truth of God's word according to your spirit? Lord, give us courage today to face the life. Lord, I, I pray um, just for our personal lives. I pray for our families. Protect them from the evil one. Uh, I just pray that we as just... Brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, fathers, spouses, Lord, that we, that we, wives, mothers, all that, Lord, that we would just care for our people well, that we would love them. Lord, thank you for this church. I just thank you for um, their devotion to the word of God and its proclamation. Lord, thank you for how your word is a lamp unto feet and are a light unto my path. And uh, thank you for just the generosity and love of the church here. And be with the rest of this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.